Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Oh no! M Mega Gigas is using his particle cannon! I'll have to use all of my cool abilities that even though it's a standard robot, because I'm the protagonist, my robot has a bunch of cool stuff that none of the other robots has! Strike Laser Cannon! Folks, we're talking Zoids today. It is me, your uh, chosen one, organoid pilot, pulling double duty as both wizard and bruiser. Holden has the week off and... This is gonna be a this is gonna be a huge one, guys. This is gonna be a real Gonzo uh, journey. Um, I had my choice of topics this week, and I was always uh, obsessed with the impact of Zoids in America. It's one of those forgotten franchises locked away in the same vault as Bakugan and Shaman King and all these other almost also rands from the two thousands anime boom. And my favorite thing about it is nobody talks about. Zoids. Nobody has a YouTube channel with a million hits that goes into the reviews of the anime. Nobody does retro video game Let's Plays. Hell, they don't even have like ch uh, chintzy Netflix documentaries about the history of the franchise. But anytime I have ever mentioned Zoids, my shit gets blown up out of the woodwork. Just countless people are like, oh man, I used to wake up at 5 a.m. to catch that shit on Cartoon Network. Uh, back when I was working at Dorkly, literally one of our most uh, socially viral posts ever was just a JPEG I made that just said, yo, y'all remember Zoids? Like people care about Zoids, but nobody remembers anything about it. The anime ran for dozens of episodes. Uh, the toy line has existed since the 1980s, which is, uh, considering that I thought this was a 2000s thing, is going to be a mind blow. But it was too much to bear. This was such a immensely, oddly powerful topic that I had to call in so many reinforcements. So we're going to have two guests with us today. And the first of which, I have uh, seen him on many different things. He's been a commentator. He is a author. He is a freelance uh, writer. He is a translator, a localizer. And he is talking to us all the way from glorious Nippon itself. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say it. If we're talking about Japanese uh, robot toys, this is the man who wrote the book about Japanese robot toys, uh, Matt Alt. All right, can you hear me? How you doing? I'm here. I'm here in the homeland of Zoids, uh, <laughs> <laughs> live and direct. Uh, 
Thanks for having me on. This is this has got to be. I've been doing a lot of podcasts recently uh, to promote my new book that just came out, Pure Invention: How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. And I have to say, this topic is probably the most pinpoint one that I've ever been asked to talk about so far. So this is kudos to you. Uh, You're you're really digging in the crates with this one. And it's an awesome topic. I love Zoids. I grew up playing with Zoids in real time, as the kids say. It's uh, but, you know, there's no giant Zoid statue that tourists visit outside in public parks. It's it's, not yet. (laughs) I mean, they tried to reboot it. I've watched some episodes of Wild. It's eh, not my... Not my cup of tea. I guess I have to be eight years old to truly appreciate it. Right, right, right. Well, you know, it was never really about, and I, I don't say this with, with any kind of malice towards people who really dug the show, because that's really cool. But Zoids, to me, was was always more about the toys than the show, as mm-hmm. opposed to like the other way around, where you get a lot of shows where it's obviously much more about like the characters and the drama, and then the toys kind of came as merchandise. Zoids is, I think, this interesting example of a show that came, the toys came first, and then the show came out of it, right? Right. Uh, and so for people, maybe if they aren't familiar with the toy line, because we're going to start with the toy line. Everything starts with the toys. Um, we'll get into the anime later with uh, Mike Drucker. But for now, we are uh, the, to describe the Zoids toy line. What would you say? Uh, I would describe it as mechanized kind of uh, mecha animals. Of various species, we got mecha gorillas, mecha turtles, mecha tigers, mecha wolves, and they have a very kind of, uh, at least in the modern sense, uh, a military style hardware design Mm -hmm. with lots of big armor plates, lots of uh, big cockpit canopies, missiles and cannons and turrets everywhere. And I guess as the as the series has advanced, it's kind of gone through it's evolved with the times uh it started out kind of goofy space age stuff and now it's like full anime they got like sword wheedling ones it's- yeah 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 well you know it's to me you know i really started playing with the zoids in the early 80s when they first started coming out and and those original ones to me the concept was of basically fossil robots like they looked like kind of the bony skeletons of brontosauruses and tyrannosauruses and stegosauruses and things like that only with guns yeah (laughs) and you know it's like a winning combination right if you're like eight years old it's like wow i like dinosaurs i like robots i like lasers how about dinosaur robots with lasers you know it was kind of a genius uh move on on tommy's part there were a few in my memory if you said hey jake what was that toy franchise in the 80s with dinosaurs with lasers i'd be like well that's either dino riders or dino saucers or like 800 other ones that definitely keyed (laughs) in on these two big loves of children which are yeah 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 and there's a ton of them in japan even before that machine zoro which was a really a big one about like dinosaurs where they put like robot cockpits where the dinosaur's head used to be i don't quite know how that was supposed to work and like i mean it's a perennial favorite right like little boys like dinosaurs and they like robots and you know and so like combining the two concepts together seems like a no-brainer for a toy company but um zoids is definitely one of the more enduring ones i mean it seems like it's always been there and it's still continuing on today right oh it's still it's still coming out they're still releasing models uh actually this is a huge distinction i completely blew over it uh key to the zoids experience is that these are model kits yes yeah you Uh, have to build build them. them yourself yeah yeah and that's yeah they're like puzzles or kits exactly uh so key to the uh zoids building process is a uh 
it's almost inherent to the line starting from the beginning. They have some kind of mechanized action, whether it's a wind up clockwork engine or a friction kind of thing where you have to like push the wheels to get momentum going or uh, the most popular ones. You had to like strap the thing up with D batteries and A batteries and double A's and uh, they would have motors and that from that core base, just any any way you could turn uh, rotary motion into like a reciprocal linear motion to make the thing move. They found a way to do it. So it had one up on Gundam. Like, because uh, we did a Gundam episode. We've talked about the Gunpla revolution. Right. But Zoids were different. Zoids moved. But, you know, I think it's interesting you link it to Gunpla, Gundam model kits, because that, that build-it-yourself aspect was really key. And also, especially in Japan, the uh, the kind of marketing around it also played up, like, kind of, you can customize these. You know, you can put parts from other Zoids on this Zoid, or you can build, like, little dioramas for them, or you can, like, paint them different colors. So that kind of, like, they, Zoids came of age in that, like, 1983, I think, is when it finally changed its name to Zoids from what it had originally been Mm. uh, a year before that. And, uh, you know, in the States, it was sold under the name Robostrux, which has this kind of construction Mm -hmm. sort of uh, sound in its name. And so, yeah, that, you know, the build-it-yourself aspect... You know, but not needing glue and not needing, you know, paint or anything uh, was was, I think, really key to that experience. Oh, this is. Uh, yeah. The other thing that really visually marks a Zoids line is the construction system was based around. Uh, obviously, you got the injection molded plastic thing with all the parts kind of put together and you had to snap them off uh, yourself. And the way they were fixed together with was. Uh, these axles, like these, uh, I guess, I don't know, rotors, uh, pegs, whatever, tubes, plastic tubes yeah, yeah, yeah. that were then snapped together and then sealed with these big plastic caps, these like end yes. pieces. rubber. They were like rubber or something or vinyl. Yeah. Um, and all current designs in, still use those. It's key to the Zoids aesthetic that these giant mm-hmm. rivets are just dotting all of the joints and sides of these robot animals. Uh, I feel like that's almost the most distinctive thing, kind of a form versus function cohesion. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't look like Transformers where like, you know, when they're in their vehicle mode or mm-hmm. their beast mode or whatever, they're supposed to actually look like the vehicles or, mm-hmm. or animals that they are. Like they, they, they retain this kind of mechanized sort of appearance and that yeah I, I think that that kind of unified aesthetic is one of the reasons why the the series has continued as long as it has i mean look at this 1983 to now i mean that's a that's a crazy long run that's like that's like almost like star wars length run for a for a a, a kid's uh toy and and animation series. I mean, that's 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 some serious success. So obviously uh, we're talking about just a uh, inconsequential uh, piece of media from the from your childhood. And so obviously we have to start in the 1920s in pre-war Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Why wouldn't we? Of course. That's That's when the robots invaded. So let's go back. Why wouldn't we have to talk about the entirety of global history hegemony in order to talk about Zoids? It's actually it's actually not as crazy of an idea as it sounds because uh, you know people associate Japan so much with like high with you know high tech stuff and like characters and you know, Hello Kitty and like all these kind of fantasy products today, and in fact. 
Japan kind of rose to prominence as a world power、uh, at the turn of the 20th century and leading up to World War II as an exporter of toys. That that was how that was Japan's top export, and they were competing really strongly against uh, uh, Great Britain and Germany, who were the at the time the world's biggest exporters of toys. And、uh, World War One, when World War One sucked all of Europe into it, like Japan used that as its opportunity, and and basically became,、uh, they were poised to become the number one exporter. They became number two quickly, and then they were almost going to become number one. And then World War Two broke out, and obviously nobody is buying Japanese toys after Pearl Harbor. So、uh, that was a <laughs> that was a kind of uh, big uh, coming down for Japanese global toy ambitions. But the point being. In that the, the first half of the century, if you asked an American about Japan, they'd probably associate it with toys too. So it's it's interesting how much things come back full circle.、Uh, Tomy is the company now.、Uh, the company has had、uh, mergers, and now it's known as Takara Tomy,、uh, longtime rival of Bandai, the creators of Gundam.、Uh, but Tomy starts with a with a little boy born in 1902 named Ichiro Tomiyama. Who came from a、mm-hmm. prosperous merchant family, who、uh, was then cast off into poverty after the Russo-Japanese War ruined his family's fortune, and his father became addicted to gambling.、Uh, the kid, at age eleven, was shipped off to an apprenticeship at a bookbindery, and he bounced around, eventually ending up working for various toy companies in Japan. One of his earliest、uh, claims to fame, young Ichiro, at age twelve. Uh, helped invent the、uh, pop pop boat that could propel itself in water when you lit it on flame.、Uh, it features heavily in Ponyo, the uh, uh, the Ghibli film. So, yeah. So yeah. already weird connections. We got we got the Ponyo pop up boat. The he obviously grows old, starts his own toy company. What a nice guy.、Yes. Uh, he's uh, because obviously all this information is coming from、uh, Japanese. Uh, sources.、Uh, everything is just pure corporate propaganda. I don't know if he was a good husband. I don't know if he ever did drugs. I don't know if his employees hated him. This is just a singular visionary who always cared about quality first and foremost. Well, I think you know, putting aside what his personality was like, because I don't know either. It's it's just a fact that you know if you were a toy maker with any ambitions back even in the pre-war or, or post-war era, it meant you were working with tin. Because tin was the material of choice for making durable toys back then. This is before the widespread advent of like plastic and vinyl and the other kind of、uh, high tech materials that we take for granted today. And whether you were making an airplane or a car or a robot,、um, there were a lot of tin robots. You were using pressed tin, basically the same stuff that you make,、uh, you know, <laughs>、uh, tuna cans or, or beer cans out of, right?、Uh, according、and、to it- Tomy's website, which again. Purely,、uh, I just definitely the most fair source, the most unbiased source of this.、Uh, when others were dedicated to using Tim, he was insistent that his wind-up airplane toy that you stuck on the ceiling and it would fly in a circle used aluminum because he cared about quality so goddamn much. Hiro、oh, Tomiyama would die. Hiro, we love you. We love you, man. <laughs> We love you. Well, you know, it's interesting because after World War II, Japan had been literally, basically bombed、uh, back into the Stone Age.、Uh, that's not even an exaggeration. Like all of Japan's cities, with the exception of Kyoto, had been leveled in、uh, bombing attacks. And of course, there's Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And as you might imagine, there's not a lot in the way of raw materials going around. So in the years after World War II. 
what would happen was that Japanese toy makers would go and make deals with the American military bases to haul off all of their aluminum garbage, all of their cans, all of their tin, and uh, they would clean it and press it and use that as materials to make toys. So in the immediate, immediate post-war era, we're talking the first, like, you know, five years of occupation, it's not com- not uncommon at all to find toys. And if you look inside of them, you can see, like, the serrations or ridges from, like, when it was a can or, like, even the printing of, like, whatever the, you know, the product it was inside. And so, like, Japanese in the, in the years after World War II kind of went back to basics, right? And they're trying to reinvent themselves, uh, reinvent their economy. They turn back to toys and they're turning this literal trash uh, into treasure, uh, and starting to, uh, kind of kickstart their economy and, and, and bring their country back online. And Tomiyama, uh, Eiichiro Tomiyama was one of many people, uh, operating in that business, uh, in the years after World War II. So in 1951, the, uh, I think it's the, the Tomiyama company, which is not Tomi yet, but it'll get there, literally does what you say they do. And they create a B-29 bomber push friction engine toy. Yes. Uh, Using all of the highest caliber, again, Tomy website, definitely fair, using the highest efficiency, most exacting standards, revolutionizing the Japanese (laughs) toy industry. And... Okay, go on. I love this hyperbole. This This is amazing. I mean, for a country that you said was bombed into the Stone Age by this exact vehicle, it was kind of this weird fuck you move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, go on. Uh, So from, again, from the website, this is the quote. uh, The B-29 wrecked havoc on Japan during the war, Ichiro conceded, but it is regarded as the most distinguished airplane from America's point of view. Given that, I want to make a product that will amaze children in America by showing them Mm -hmm. the true, remarkable technological capabilities of Japan's toy makers. And I actually own one of these things. It's amazing. It's it's about a, a foot wingspan and a foot length, and it's incredibly well made and detailed for its era. It's it's a really wonderful uh, you know toy when you look at it just as a toy. When you take a step back and look at it as a cultural object, you start to get a little bit more complicated feelings because not only was this a detailed toy, uh, not even a model, but a toy of this weapon that had ravaged Japanese cities, it was being built in the same neighborhood that was the main target of the B-29s in Tokyo, the Asakusa neighborhood, which is where all the toy uh, industry was and still is centered, and thus being built by people who had survived the bombings of these actual vehicles uh, during World War II. Now, the reason that America targeted Asakusa and uh, Japan's downtown area and Operation Meeting House is what it was called, the firebombing campaign that was actually, that actually killed more people than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings together. Guys, um, we're talking about Zoids. We're talking <laughs> Zero Liger, Blade Liger, Command Wolf, uh, the Death Star, <laughs> all of your favorite Zoids we're talking about today. But, you know, toys, toys are more than toys, right? Toys, there's, there's a whole, they're part of our, you know, an entire civilization. They're part of our society. And, and the background of how they're produced is really key. So Tomiyama comes out of this backdrop, right? And he's a really canny guy who makes toys that he knows will appeal to Westerners, whether, you know, he puts his own feelings aside about it. And, and that's like a really amazing, uh, uh, kind of, I don't know that I'd be able to do it. I, I, you know, I, it's, it's pretty impressive. But anyway, that's where Tomiyama got his start. 
And uh, he sold that B-29 to a different company. He wasn't Tomy just yet, but then he started the Tomy company. And, uh, you know, after a lot of trials and tribulations through the 60s and 70s, they arrived at Zoids. <laughs> and here we are talking about it. Yes. I skipped over a lot of history there. Sorry. That's fine. We, I mean, uh, uh, remember those like little water push button games you played at the dentist's office? They yes. made those. They made those. Yes, yes. And also, <laughs> I remember they had these... They had these crazy toys that I really loved as a kid where like they were a little suitcase and you'd open them up and like a little wind up bobbly thing would run down like a, 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 a bowling alley and knock over the pins and things like that. They had a, all of these wacky, like to me as a kid, Tommy was, was more about these wacky mm-hmm. original non-character toys. Yes. Absolutely. Then they were about like, you know, Bandai was making Gundam kits. So, you know, like Mattel was selling the Shogun Warriors from Japan, you know, Hasbro selling the Transformers. Tommy, to me, was more of a, like, a, a toy company that made, like, you know, playthings. Yes. You know what I'm saying? The brand is still, the the Tommy brand is still more associated with stuff like baby monitors and, right. like, nursery school toys in America, right. at the very least. Not not manly grown-up toys like Zoids, like we play with. So, in the, uh, <laughs> so, we're past the late 70s, Gundam comes out, the Mecha Wave is, cra- uh, Super Robot, dead. Who cares? Yes. Uh, Mazinger, more like Snoozer. I'm falling asleep here. <laughs> Ouch. I need to he- Ouch. I need to feel the horrors of war and have lengthy dialogues about whether or not the next evolution of mankind is one of peace. Uh, and so Tommy gets in on the action with their own unique set of robot model kits and revolutionizes everything. A toy line we all know and love as Mechabonica? Yeah, where'd that come from? Uh, it comes from 1981. Zoids uh, was not yet Zoids yet. And so Tomy releases Mechabonica, which was uh, messengers to the space Mechabonica. They were kind of half, barely, an, they were animal-like, very simple figures that all uh, included a wind-up mechanism in the center that would either flap wings on a little pterodactyl guy or move legs on a, like, a bipedal Tyrannosaurus thing. And when I say Tyrannosaurus thing, imagine someone like drew a stick figure of a Tyrannosaurus, gave him like big, heavy wind up toy feet and stuck a cockpit on top of it. Like, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of like a stick man. Definitely. Yeah, it was. They were were real primitive. Mechabonica. Wow. It sounds like some kind of strain of medical marijuana, doesn't it? Um, The toys (laughs) did not do well, even in Japan. But the toys actually did pretty okay. In Europe and America, and in, in as part of the localization process, they changed it from Mechabonica to Zoids, the pre-hysterical monster machines. So, my if I can just jump in here, my understanding is that the, the line, just like you said, it didn't do too well, and they decided that it needed to be rebranded. Mm-hmm. And so, they held an internal competition... Oh. For, the, for the employees to rename the series from Mechabonica to something else. And um, the, the the winning title was uh, in Japanese. It was like Mechaseimei Tai Zoido, which is like, you know, Mechaseimei is like, you know, or mechanical organism zoids. And uh, that was the winning, that was the winning title. The guy who came up with it was basically assigned the head of the Zoids team and uh, took a couple of other young bucks under his wing, his mechanical uh, battery powered wing 
and uh, it's, and restarted the series in a, in a kind of different pattern. And I should say, this kind of internal competition to rebrand and rename things is really common in Japanese toy companies. The exact same thing happened in Sanrio with Hello Kitty. Hello Kitty had this huge boom from about 1978, 1979 to 1980, 81. After that, like it kind of fizzled out. And so instead of retiring Hello Kitty, they had this kind of internal competition to figure out like, how are we going to rebrand this? And the woman who won is now like, she totally took Hello Kitty into the kind of mm-hmm. modern iconic character that we know her as now. So that the, the point of this isn't that Hello Kitty is a Zoid, although I would like to see that. Um, it is that uh, these kind of internal competitions are really key to Japanese uh, creativity and toy companies, I think. We've told a similar story on our many Japanese video game episodes. You are absolutely right. Also, I am so goddamn grateful that I'm talking to a guest who can has not only has access, but can read and understand the Japanese wikis because the English wikis have been a little bit spotty. Well, it's tough, you know, I mean, it's Zoids. So I think it's also kind of another key thing that we should probably talk about here to, to kind of contextualize this is that in Japan, toys basically come in two flavors, which is they're either character toys, which are toys that are merchandised for a famous show or something like that, like, you know, Mazinger Z or Gundam or you know, any other one you can name. Uh, and then the other kind is a non-character toy, an original toy, which starts just as a toy series on its own merits, its own, you know, features and gimmicks and stuff like that. And then maybe or maybe not turns into a toy series, uh, anime series later, but it's basically toy first. And Zoids is definitely the latter. It was not merchandised from a comic book or a show. They created the toys first. They sold them based on the fact that they were these wind-up or battery-operated you know, features in the, in the toys and, uh, and, and had to kind of go their own way from that. And it's, that's tough. It's actually a really tough way to market a toy line, I think, because you don't have, you know, a million kids watching it on TVs across Japan or America or whatever to help you sell it. You have to just sell it based on its own merits, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, well, you know, so many toys start with a gimmick and that's usually enough, but the tide was kind of changing. Uh, I've s- heard it suggested by people that probably also don't have access to the Japanese wikis that uh, they had kind of seen what had happened with the Takara company and their Diaclone line and how they were. Yeah. Uh, how kind of the factionalization of creating a good team and a bad team were super integral in selling the series overseas. And so uh, the quote unquote battle story is introduced at this point in the early Zoids line. And it's uh, not the most complicated one, but now there's like a good team and a bad team. There's the right. uh, Xenoboss or Gylex. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's, they have these crazy names. Helic? Helic, I think, is another one of them. They, they just... There's a blue team and a red team. <laughs> they, right, yeah, exactly right. Good guys, bad guys. The um, Blue team also can be known as the uh, Blue Guardians, uh, the Helic Republic, the Xenobus Empire. Uh, all the, the the basic idea is that there is now a history, there is a story, and you know it helps kids guide their play. You know, it yes. kind of gives you a motive, and all of this is just uh, material on the back of the box. Yes, but it's still at least something. Well, and that you know, I think Takara, you're absolutely right on. I don't know like what the what the machinations were inside Tomi at the time, but 
quite a few years before Zoids came out, Takara hit big with this series called Henshin Cyborg, which was basically those old 12-inch G.I. Joe dolls, but recast in translucent plastic with all of these like kind of chrome mechanical innards inside. And, and that became what we know in the U.S. as the Micronauts. They shrunk it down to make mm-hmm. these Microman toys. And then that ended up becoming Diaclone, which is the kind of precursor to... Uh, the Transformers. And those were all sold as original toys in, in Japan. No TV series, no anime, no nothing like that. Just as you put it, this story that's on the back of the box, or maybe maybe they hired somebody to do a little comic book and pack it in with some of the toys or something like that. But it was all kind of this internalized uh, uh, thing. It, it wasn't like there wasn't any show to base it on. So that's, that's you know, I, I'm always fascinated by toy lines like that because it's just, it seems to me a much more kind of creative thing to dream it up from nothing than to have than to base it on what you're seeing on the screen, if that makes sense. And if you're familiar with the um, with the, like, I'm talking to the true heads. The if you if you do remember it at this point, uh, the idea that these are military machines uh, that are piloted and part of this ancient or you know decade century spanning space battle is established, and we're getting. A lot of already classic designs, stuff like the Shield Liger, which is this blocky kind of armored uh, big cat. The Command Wolf, which is a sleek kind of pointed, I'm just going to say it, a dog with a gun on its back. The uh, Gojulus, which is just Mecha Godzilla. It's just a big Mecha Godzilla. God, I love that one. That, that one, one is, is so awesome. That one is very good. Uh, now they're uh, battery powered. A lot of them are. So you have that like playing, you know, you're building your own electronic toy. Iron Kong, the big gorilla one, get this. Oh, man. It's a gorilla, but it's a robot and has guns on its back. So the line is expanding rapidly, but they still need to be a a hit in the West. And so two very interesting attempts happen in rapid uh, succession in 1984. Okay, first we're going to go in uh, to Great Britain, where uh, the Zoids line is pretty is doing better than it is in America. And as part of their promotion attempts, they hire Marvel UK to create their own comic line comic tie in that is known as get this Spider-Man and Zoids. Your friendly neighborhood Zoid. No, uh, okay. <laughs> let me, let me, let me stress this. The comic is called Spider-Man and Zoids. Uh, Spider-Man has nothing to do with Zoids this is a UK only comic. It was uh, at the time, it was only 35 pence an issue. And there would be original Zoids uh, comics mixed with Spider-Man reprints. Like we're talking Black Costume Saga, Secret Wars, Gwen Stacy, all this stuff. And it had its own original series that was made from whole cloth, this uh, involving like a Earth space colony that was stranded on a planet full of Zoids. The idea is that the Zoids are techno organic beings that naturally uh, evolved on this planet. They that inv- sounds familiar. They invent this bizarre. I still don't get the logic behind this because this is a recurring theme in Zoids media from the eighties. The little cockpit guys, because these are these are piloted vehicles. They are not like because tr- uh, trans. Even though Microman. Oh, I'm all over the place already, Matt. I'm all over. I'm in the hole. I'm in the no hole, man. No worries. No I'm sinking. Well, I think, I, you know, I, I, if I can just say, like, in, at that at that point in in Western, you know, pop media, so to speak, we hadn't quite cottoned on to the idea that a human could be piloting a giant mecha yet. 
And so every single time, you know, when, when all of these Japanese toy lines came over to the States, they would inevitably kind of anthropomorphize them mm-hmm. and make it so that, you know, the, and this happened with the Transformers, right? Suddenly they're sentient beings. It happened with, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later, Starriers, which is a kind of Zoids Wait, offshoot. Starriers is right in the docket. Right. And it's, you know, you're talking about how, you know, they, they have these, the toys obviously have these little human pilots, but they would try to explain it away as there's some kind of like, you know, computer or something like that. And, you know, that always just drive me nuts as a kid because I thought the idea that a human could pilot one of these things was the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. And at the time, there wasn't very much of that in Western pop lore you know now we have like pacific rim and like the idea of like you know somebody piloting a giant you know mecca is is pretty established but back then it wasn't and so they had to people would like writers would twist themselves into knots coming up with you know ways to anthropomorphize uh these giant robots kind of i guess in the wake of the transformer success so the thing they came up with for uh spider-man and zoids was that the Actual pilots that were in that were, came with the toys that sat in the cockpit are themselves little robots, and they're just big computers that happen to be shaped like people, and they forgive have their me, own characters and their own drives and their own personas, and it's like a big deal if one of them dies, but none of the humans die because that would be too spooky for kids. Yes. And the thing that is the most outstanding about Spider-Man and Zoids is late in the series run... Scripting duties is taken over by none other than a young Grant fucking Morrison, Mr. Doom Patrol, Mr. Uh, Spooky with Scottish wizard (laughs) Grant Morrison himself. Wow. Wow. Some of his uh, all star Superman, uh, Batman and Robin, the Invisibles, Animal Man, all of these like insane achieve like landmark comic runs. Got his first like real mainstream paid work from Spider from Spider Man and Zoids, and he tells the epic story of the Black Zoid, in which one of the human uh, prisoners gets turned into a fucked up Terminator man, and he finds a real spooky, unkillable Zoid, and everybody has to team up to stop him. It's dark. It's like bloody. It's insane. Just violent. It's kind. Of, it, it's what you would expect when it turns out. Grant Morrison wrote a Zoids comic. It's actually kind of fascinating. It's it, another fascinating thing is that it was a comic, right? Mm-hmm. Like they didn't make a show out of it. And the reason being for that is I'm sure the same that's in America, which is that until about 1983, uh, you couldn't make a, you, you literally, it was illegal to broadcast or, or not exactly illegal, but very difficult to make a show that contained the product that was being sold to kids. So like it, it was called, um, host pitching. And it had been found illegal in America, like in the late 1960s, when Hot Wheels tried uh, to make a TV show based on its product that contained Hot Wheels cars. And like they went to court and there was all this big thing about it. And so for a long time in the States, you could not merchandise characters from kids shows mm-hmm. and you couldn't. And kids shows had to be educational. And then in 1984, after Ronald Reagan became president, he was like he ran on this huge deregulationist small government platform. He deregulates the FCC. And suddenly, like, any company can sell anything they want to anybody at any time, including to kids. And that opened the floodgates for all of this uh, kind of Saturday morning cartoon content. Uh, but until that point, you know, you know, when you when we started to see, like, Hanna-Barbera's Pac-Man, that was the first, and, like, G.I. Joe and the Transformers, My Little Pony. Before that, the only way that you could kind of do a cross-branding 
you know, multi-platform mix for your toy was to hire a comic book company mm -hmm. to do it, which is why you saw all of these like Rom the Space Knight, you know, from Marvel and the Micronauts and like, you know, the Shogun Warriors and this Zoids thing in England, uh, which I'm sure was much the same uh, sort of concept. But basically, uh, you, you it was a comic book or nothing until about the mid 80s. The the last bizarre thing I will say about the this UK push, uh, besides our magic Scottish wizard comic book luminary, is that the series was popular enough that Zoid's toys in England were sold in boxes that actually said Spider-Man and Zoids on it, even though the toy line had nothing to do with wow. Spider-Man. I have never seen that. I have that's that's amazing. Wow. Price drop, time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. So in America, things are still a little bit touch and go. And I think what kind of ended up happening is the problem seems to be the model kits. American kids were lazy. American kids, we just want our toys ready packaged. We want to just like pop open the box and start playing with them and even have the narrative kind of given to us. We want to see the cartoon. We want to like know who the good guys are. We want to pick a favorite character. We want to buy that character. And then we want to start like, uh, you know, well, in toy commercials, the play usually involved crashing them into neatly arranged cardboard boxes. But mm -hmm. in, you know, it's, that's just how play should go. And so the brilliant idea was to take the Zoids that we know and love. Well, not in America. We didn't love them. And just make them into ready-built action figures. And that toy line was called Starriers. Like Warriors. Uh, yes. You know how the okay, so you know how the 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 uh, the word star ends in AR, and you know mm -hmm. how the word warriors also has an AR, and even though wow. those two sounds don't aren't the same sound, it's still the same letters. So they just but still get it. They're warriors from the stars. They're starriers with a Marvel comic book. I might add with an awesome covers series of covers. So this has happened a couple of times. Uh, it happened with G.I. Joe. Uh, famously, uh, it happened with Transformers. And Tomy wanted in on it because they were they were chasing that Transformers nut. They were going for that G.I. Joe giant toy franchise uh, experience. In fact, I even found some uh, on a on not even on, on the Internet archive. I had to find these scans, uh, all these trade ads for the Star Wars line. Right. Right. Uh, with stuff like 
A sales force like this could mean millions for you. We've dedicated a million dollars of ad budget for the 1984-1985 season. Tomy has launched Star Ears with four million nationwide broadcast campaign, uh, a syndicated TV miniseries, and uh, in the and then a spring and fall 1985 TV show. Five million five hundred thousand comic books published. Like they were going hard. Um, the thing about Star Ears is. It's imagine all the things that uh, made Zoids cool, like the fact that they were animals and the fact that they looked like that you built them yourself. Instead, they were just kind of these generic robot things with like a lot of stuff sticking out of the chest. There would be like a starrier with uh, two guns sticking out of his chest like they were just very fierce nipples or an evil one. <laughs> Uh, with just a big yeah. drill sticking out of the, his chest. The main, guy, the main guy had like basically a fork sticking out of his chest. Yeah. I remember that. I don't remember what his name was, but it's literally like a vibrating fork. And I was like, oh, what, do you hug your, 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 your enemies to death? Like, how, how, exactly does this, how exactly does this work here? From this Star Years line, this was uh, Tomy's big push to Hidden America. They had the full creative force of uh, 1980s Marvel Comics. And the even though the TV show never made it to production, not even the pilot... The Star Ears comic book is was a real thing that exists with uh, Thor luminary Luis Simonson as the uh, head writer, Michael Chen on pencils, and beautiful drop-dead gorgeous covers painted by legendary comic artist Bill Sienkiewicz. And after I read that stuff in real time, I was actually like, that was that was my like childhood. I, I literally picked those things up off the shelf and read them. So uh, you know, I can attest to the fact that. You know, my comic book store, those things pulled me in big time. It worked. Um, but what didn't work was selling the series, right? The actual toys. I don't think they did that well. They did not do well. Uh, and I'm going to say right now, the comic is fucked. The comic is bad. The comic does not work on any level because <laughs> yeah, the toy weird. line does not fit the kind of story they want to tell. They are no. desperately trying for a post-apocalyptic Autobots versus Decepticons thing. In this version, what they came up with is the blue team, obviously, is the protectors with uh, Hotshot, Crank, Cut Up, Nipper, Tinker, Runabout. And uh, they are trying to find the lost society of mankind uh, because... They're like, hey, isn't it weird that this dead uh, legendary civilization looks exactly like the little gold computers that dwell in our cockpits? That drove me nuts, man. There should have been people in there. I was hoping for like giant robot combat and I didn't get it. It makes so little sense that like there's people in the cockpit, but they aren't people. That the core drama of the series is them trying to fit like find people because clearly people exist. Otherwise, why would they have cockpits? Honestly, it was things like that that made me start realizing how much I prefer Japanese pop culture as a kid. <laughs> I'm serious. I like, you know, and no offense to the to the people who I'm sure worked hard coming up with, like desperately coming up with a plot for this like really limited handful of action figures. But yeah, this is what I was talking about. Bending yourself over backwards to to, you know, never have a piloted, person, you know, piloting a giant machine because then you run into all sorts of problems with like, you know, what you're allowed to portray for kids entertainment. I think that's really the big thing. Even after the FCC deregulated, you couldn't show anybody ever being, you know, killed or even yeah. hurt, which is why in G.I. Joe, like 
they're shooting lasers at like cyborgs or something. Not even cyborgs. Those are people. They're shooting like lasers at like what we think of as drones and stuff now. Uh, my favorite example is from my 90s childhood, uh, watching Leonardo of the Ninja Turtles wield two razor sharp katanas, wave them around and then kick a guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because why wouldn't you, right? I mean, you've trained yeah. your whole life with these weapons. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you just use your foot? Uh, so, yeah. The key thing, this is the crux of why Starriers does not work as a multimedia property. The, the bastards don't have faces. None of them have yeah. faces. They're all, some of them just have glass canopy domes. Some of them just have like generic cockpits with a flappy mouth. Many of them just, I think by the nature of the molds and the parts used, have the same head. But like, you'll just see a robot with a drill sticking out of him. And it'll be like, I'm the sassy one. And you're just like, yeah, are you? I don't I don't yeah, it's know. Like, you know, it's like it's like trying to tell the two dudes from Daft Punk apart. Exactly. You know? like, <laughs> they're, they're, they're trying to build this this uh, narrative. There's literally uh, two robots are in love with each other. They're like, oh, honey, like, yes, uh, Nipper and Tinker are look are a married couple and neither of them have a face. They literally don't even have a cockpit. They both have like they don't even have clothes. a body. They're like they're like they look like little toy wagons with like with like scissors on the front of them. they're like running with scissors. It was it was really confusing to me as a kid. Like, is this what grownups do when they're in love? It's do they, are they? <laughs> it's just it was such a horrifying misstep. And just I'm. We're never going to end. The name is bad. And the core appeal, what sets apart the line was that they were these mecha, you know, you built them. You got a sense of like engineering and like the thrill of having accomplished something. So, okay. I think they, so they messed up Star Ears because they don't, they're not good like character toys to like build well, a universe toys, on. They're not sold in Japan. Like that, that mm -hmm. was actually another thing. I was actually really surprised when I came back over here and you know, I would see, I'd, you know, I would make a point of going to Japanese used toy stores and vintage toy stores because that's my hobby. I, I collect Japanese toys and I would never, ever see Starrier stuff. And I realized very quickly that, oh, you know, the, who, the Japanese who made this for the Western market didn't think enough of it to really bring it into the Japanese market. And there were a couple little like sort of Zoid crossover things. Rats is, I think, the name of the, the toy series that was sold under here. But for the most part, that stuff is just not really scene here i i um anyway let's star years it's i i think i think we've beaten this horse to death what happened after star years to the to the zoids line where did it go so the zoids line continued unabated in japan with new uh series new entries tons of you know it's the the i think just the idea that it's a model you build it it you watch it walk around for a couple of minutes and you put it on your shelf is just an acceptable form of play uh, in America, they uh, in 1985 to 1986, the line is brought back by Tomy as a construction toy, which is kind of what they should have done in the first place. And it was called Robostrux. Oh, yes. Basically, they just imported a bunch of the Japanese Zoids. Uh, they kind of did a couple of they recolored a lot of the plastic parts to still fit the uh, red versus blue aesthetic. The battle story, quote unquote, the backing text talks about the Blue Guardians and their infinite war against the Red Mutants. 
But the models were relatively high priced and the line was kind of short lived. And they were big. They were really pretty big, like a, like a foot tall for the, 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 the Tyrannosaurus one and the, the kind of pterodactyl one. The Brachiosaurus one also, Ultrasaur yeah. came out at that time. Uh, well, I can, you know, I can say among, you know, my friends and, and people who, who actually, you know, looked at that toy series when it, when it came out, most of them were just kind of playing with them as Godzilla toys. Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think anybody paid any attention to whatever half-assed story, you know, Tomi had put on them for the American uh, release of those. It was just all like, oh, this is Mechagodzilla, you know, this is, this is, this is Rodan, you know, that kind of thing. It's weird that, so we talked about a little bit in the Lego episode, but like construction toys is a tough business. If you have too many exotic parts, uh, you know, you have to reuse as many things as possible to even make a profit because, uh, those stuff like the motors, stuff like uh, the unique plastic injection parts really build up the price. And if you and because you're bi- and for American audiences, if you're building it yourself, you feel like it should be cheaper. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing that there wasn't a lot of marketing and the, it was kind of high priced. So at that point, the Zoids line was kind of retired in the West until once again, someone got the big idea that like, hey, these toys are hidden in Japan. We, we, we can figure it out. We can figure it out. And that team was Kenner of uh, Star Wars action figure fame. Kenner buys the rights to Zoids in 1995 and through uh, 1995 to 1996 release Technozoids. Uh, ah, Mary, I, yes. my uh, super producer, Mary, uh, could you please play a little bit of the Technozoids commercial? Because we are in the grunge era of boys toy ads. In the construction world of the future, you don't just build them, you bring them to life. Technozoids! They ain't just little building toys! All new breeds are technozoids! You don't just build them, you bring them to life! Technozoids! Each one's a challenge, and you can build up to a greater challenge! He's alive! Oh my god, wow, this is this is after my time. This is amazing. And this is, you know, I, I think we have to also mention that it's still kind of evolving in Japan during this whole time, right? Oh, yes. Like the, Zoids 24 scale, which are like these really cool kind of like they put these G.I. Joe size three and three quarter action figures on the on the Zoids instead of the little tiny uh, like chromed pilot guys uh, with beautiful box art by the Japanese mecha maestro Ko Yokoyama. Uh, one t- one line is just called Zoids 2, which I think okay. is funny. <laughs> I think it's just. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's it's, it's succinct. Uh, we got grade up Zoids, uh, Academy Zoids, uh, Junior Zoids, something called Zevli, which is Zoids, but they're not calling them Zoids anymore. Uh, it's yeah, there's it's still it's still a thriving franchise toy franchise in Japan, and uh, Kenner Technozoids doesn't do it, and the line lies dormant until finally we hit 1999 to the 2000s. And a little franchise called Pokemon completely blows open the toy product to uh, tie-in show to merchandise kind of, uh, I don't want to say paradigm because it's such a hack word, but way thing is done feeling. (laughs) Yeah, well, Pokemon was really in a lot of ways the culmination of like that entire post-war period of of Japanese experimentation with toys and video games, like it really, and, and cartoons, like it really all came together in a Highlander-esque, there can be only one 
uh, franchise that, you know, I, I think it's a testament that it's, it's still going strong. I mean, look at Pokemon Go, right? It was downloaded, what, a billion times in 2016 or whenever it came out? That's insane. That's like, how, what percentage of the human population is that? But in its way came a million different anime series, all with a plucky every boy protagonist who just loves the toy line so much and believes in the heart of the toy and has a unique relationship with the mascot toy. And, uh, you know, it's great by learned by watching the show, you learn about the mechanics and different things about the toys. So the show reinforces the toys, reinforces the play, reinforces the show. That's called the media mix, by the way. Oh. That's what the Japanese call it. The media mix. It's actually like a formula and they perfected it in the seventies and eighties. But I digress. Please continue. We're getting to the, we'll get to the anime in the next part, but uh, just assume the anime is released. It's re uh, also released in America. We'll get to that. That's coming up in part two. And Hasbro is like, hell yeah. Hell yeah. We're doing it again. We're bringing the Zoids in. We got the Zoids. We're doing it. We're Hasbro. We're definitely going to figure it out this time. And that is from 2001 to 2004. A weird mix of original Hasbro designs that were done in co in coordination with Tomy, and tons and tons of just imported line, uh, models from Japan. And uh, just just so we understand, we've now gone from the grunge era to the Lincoln Park era. Mary, can you play the Hasbro Zoids commercial? Zoids, mechanoid combat warriors. Your skill puts them together. Mechanical precision brings them to life. Build, customize, mobilize. Zoids. Each sold separately. Batteries not included. Some assembly required. It starts with one thing. I don't know why. It's the same opening riff. It's insane. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. See, this is this is way after my time. I'm like a grown-up by this point. Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to play with toys anymore. Haha. Uh -huh. Um, but, uh, I'm actually, this is, this is amazing to me to see how this, this evolves like this. And also, you know, I'm, I'm actually somebody who's just purely interested in the toys. I was, you know, whether it's Gundam or whether it's almost any Japanese toy series, I've always been more drawn to the physical products than the, than the, than the, the lore that's kind of spun around them. So this is just like, you know, mind being blown here. This is amazing stuff. I'm really actually curious to see your next guest talking about the uh, the the development of the cartoon franchise in the States. So in 2004, Hasbro gives up the ghost. Uh, we'll, there's a lot of reasons for that. We'll get into uh, mostly because the anime falls off a cliff. We'll get into that. And uh, oddly enough, in 2006, Tomy teams up with uh, Kotobukiya, who yes. is known for their high quality anime figures. And they released the HMM line, the high-end master model series, which finally delivers what I think a lot of Zoids fans really wanted, which was just posable, intricate, non-motorized models that you that were like built for display. That actually yes, they focus on the aesthetics, like they're they're they super focus on the looks rather than the the the, the gimmick, so to speak. Uh, usually to an older audience that is willing to pay a little bit more for like those precision parts and those like high detailed uh, components. And what I see online now, like if I go to the Zoids Reddit, if I go uh, just look for Zoids merchandise now, it's these HMM models that are really what people, especially fans that grew up with the anime, truly love. Because I think at the end of the day, the wind up mechanisms, the battery mechanisms... 
Like you build it. It's not like it's not like an RC car. It's not like a fully developed toy. It just kind of like clunks around on its, you know, it shuffles in the way that a wind up toy does. It's not. Well, and think about that. What did Tomiyama do? Tomiyama made wind up tin toys, which had that exact same gimmick. And I have a feeling in the early 80s when people like Tomiyama were still around. You know, they're probably nearing retirement. It was much easier to pitch a toy line like that. Hey, it's like a tin robot, but it's made of plastic and it's a dinosaur. And, and that's, I'm, I'm pretty sure why that series was greenlit at, at, uh, at Tomy. It was like kind of in their wheelhouse, so to speak. But you're right. In, in modern times, for modern kids, post millennial, uh, like, you know, winding something up and letting it walk across your tabletop doesn't exactly have the thrill it did for a kid in the Leave it to Beaver era. I just like cool robot tigers and dinosaurs that look like badass war machines. With guns And I want to pose them. Fi- yeah. And lasers. Yeah, I want to pose them fighting. Um, there And there were all sorts of gimmicks that I'm blowing past uh, from Zoid's fusers where you can take them apart and put them back together. Zoid's, like, blocks that were kind of a Zoid's Lego-like set where you could just take all the individual pieces and kind of like slap them together in your own way. Right. And the newest one, Zoid's Wild, which is the newest reboot. Uh, the anime just dropped in uh, on Netflix here, like this month in America. Uh, I've seen some videos and they did this amazing thing called like instinct wild mode or wild blast mode that you uh, build the thing with the battery powered engine in the middle And then there's a secondary mode where you like flip open a compartment or you open the wings and there's like even more stuff that is being used from that core engine. And that is actually fascinating. Like, I just think uh, production methods have gotten better. uh, Engineering has gotten better. Electronics have gotten better. And now some of the stuff that I see moving, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's actually kind of cool. Well, it's it's almost enough to make you get back into collecting toys again. If you ever stopped, which I didn't. No, it's amazing stuff. I, I this this new I, one of the things I really love about Japanese toy companies is that they're constantly, constantly kind of evolving their products. And especially since these products are animals, it feels all the more I don't know appropriate because the Zoids have just completely evolved since those early kind of primitive. What was it called? Bionic structs. Mecha Bonica. Mecha Bonica. I can't even remember. It's such a it's such a tongue twister. I can't even remember it. But you know, if you compare one of those Mecha Bonica toys to to one of the like modern day Zoids, it's 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 pretty incredible. It's like bacteria to human, practically <laughs> level of. I of could not have said it better myself, uh, Matt. Alt, I your book. Let's talk about it because honestly. Uh, Pure Invention, How Japan's Pop Culture Conquered the World. Uh, It's been, if you are a fan of this podcast, if you like it when we get in the weeds, if you like it when we put the strings up up between the the push pins on the cork board and tell the story of how everything is connected, you will love this book. All the times we've fallen down rabbit holes, all the times we've tried to like make the connections between past and present. This book does it, and it's been a, just it's been a mind blow so far, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, that's nice of you to say. Well, so I've always loved Japanese toys. Like you know, without Japanese toys, I my it, they they literally changed the entire direction of my life. You know, from when I was playing with Shogun Warriors in the late '70s and the Transformers and stuff, I always wanted to just I just always had this thought in the back of my mind, like where the hell did all of this amazing stuff come from? Like there's this country of people out there who thinks robots and, and, you know, dinosaurs and robot dinosaurs are just as cool as, you know, I did when I was five or 10 years old. And, uh, 
you know, pure invention is is kind of a culmination of that. I wanted to track down the kind of creators of not just toys, but all sorts of what I call fantasy delivery devices. Things like the Walkman or the karaoke machine, Hello Kitty, uh, Tamagotchi, Gundam. I wanted to track down kind of the roots and the creators and the stories, the kind of human dramas behind how not only these products came to be, but how they kind of rewired global fantasies in the process. And how actually, you know, I really think our kind of the way we play in the modern era is it has kind of become Japanized as a result of that. You can just say and, we uh, finally caught up to their post-capitalist healthscape. You can just exactly. say that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Well, you know, we all are living in a very Japanese world right now because, you know, Japan experienced a huge economic crash in the 1990s and 2010s. We experienced a big economic crash in the 2010s to the 2020s. You know, and we are increasingly like choosing to escape into virtual worlds. Like at the turn of the millennium in the, in the, you know, 2000s, the Western media used to make fun of Japanese, uh, young adults who were like obsessed with video games. And oh my God, they're texting nonstop. Like they're all they're doing is being on the internet. And like now look at us. We are a nation of people who, you know, live at home and, and don't go out, you know, for a variety of reasons, including coronavirus and are retreating into these virtual worlds and making our, connections that way. That's something that was pioneered in Japan, like so many other things that we take for granted today. Emoji, um, social media, like all of these things were pioneered by Japanese people trying to make their way through their economic hellscape. And when we found ourselves living in a similar one, lo and behold, Japanese toys and playthings of all kinds proved to be really useful tools for us. So... Pure Invention is is the story of both the, those toys and how they were created and also how we all repurpose them to kind of help our way through, as you put it, and as I put it, the uh, post-apocalyptic late capitalist hellscape that we find ourselves navigating now. I honestly cannot write. I'm being 100% sincere. If you like this podcast, you will 100% love this book. It is, I, I'm, I, I'm, I've been talking to you, the author, and I'm going to pick it up right back up when I'm done talking. Like- well, that is so great. I, you know, I, I really appreciate that. It was, it was, it was kind of hell, you know, writing it in a lot of ways. It was my first long form kind of, uh, exploration of, I'd written a lot about Japanese toys in, in the past. I was a co-founder of a website called toyboxdx.com, uh, it was founded by Alan Yen in the, in the late 1990s. And that was like a big clearinghouse for Japanese toy information. I've done lots of other books on, various kind of pinpoint aspects of Japanese pop culture, but Pure Invention was my attempt to kind of bring it all together because, you know, even the greatest, you know, deepest Zoids fan in the world probably interacts with Japan through other ways too. They probably sung karaoke. They know about Hello Kitty. You know, they might like Gundam, you know, and there's all sorts of ways that we interact with uh, Japanese fantasies. And so this is kind of my attempt at a grand unification theory, as it were, of why the hell we find Japanese stuff so cool. Before uh, we 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 uh, part ways, is there any uh, social drops you want to you want to just uh, get that clout going? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you like this kind of stuff, if you want to hear me rap about Japanese uh, toys or or go in depth on the kind of the histories of them, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Alt. I'm on uh, Instagram Alt Matt Alt. Um, my website is MattAlt.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me many places. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, I love interacting with people about this stuff. So, you know, uh, drop me a line, you know, and if you have any questions about the book or even if you don't, let's, uh, let's talk Japanese toys. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, Mary, uh, won't you uh, add some betting music? How about the uh, theme song from uh, Zoid's Chaotic Century? The one that just goes, Zoid's 
Zoids. And uh, when that's over, we'll be right back with Mike Drucker. And we're back. Guys, Zoids, let's talk about it. They're animals. They're robots. They got lasers where you don't think animals should have lasers. And if you believe in them hard enough, they'll kick each other's ass. Uh, Joining us to discuss the anime and uh, all things 2000s anime weeb nerd. I don't know, just sad child hours. This is a real sad child hours show. Yeah. Uh, is writer, uh, TV man, comedian, author, and uh, Twitter bon vivant, Mike Drucker. How you doing? I'm good. Hello, bon vivant. All right. <laughs> That's the <laughs> first time I've had bon vivant. I'll take it. <laughs> yes. Um, so the thing about the Zoids anime is it was not a primetime thing. Uh, right. like, this is how I'm try- trying to describe it. It ran on Toonami, it ran on Cartoon Network, while shows like Dragon Ball Z and Gundam Wing and Sailor Moon and Inuyasha and all these other big, monumental, paradigm-changing anime were happening in the afternoon and before school. So, yeah. like, the prime time. But nobody cares about it. Nobody, like, <laughs> there is no discourse. There is no big, like, uh, you know, how did this get made kind of right. thing about it. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a big, just, void. And... Th- I was trying to explain this to my fiance, and this is what I came up with. Yeah. This is the just shoot me of Western hit anime. <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. That's perfect. It's we all watched every episode. We were there. Right. We, we sat there. It happened. At right. Us. Yeah. And nobody cares anymore. No, this is we're in a Veronica's closet hole of culture <laughs> right now. When Just Shoot, remember when Just Shoot Me like a year ago came to like the Comcast network, like Comcast like built-in cable network, and everyone's like, "Why? What? Wh- why are we doing this?" <laughs> because it would because it happened because you sat down, it hit your eyeballs, and yeah. you can't undo that, and it just transports you. Um, like what is so? What is like the emotional landscape of a after-school cartoon in your mind? Like t- like cast your mind back to that Disney afternoon tsunami. Yeah kind of like mind space what do you think i think like elementary through early middle school it was very disney centered it was very yeah it was very like ducktales uh gargoyles like was like sort of the serious cartoon you liked as it mm-hmm. like when i was a kid it was like oh this one has a story that's ongoing mm-hmm. um so a lot of a lot of a lot of disney you know there's also things like um and this might flow into saturday morning as well but like the men in black cartoon a lot of like american movie spinoff cartoons um, I, I, I vaguely remember Godzilla spinoff ca- cartoon, not the Gadzuki one, but there was like might have no, been no, they a short... did it the, yeah. the the movie version, right? Um, so that was sort of early, like again, elementary and early middle school. Then I think middle school till high school was very anime based, whether it be Pokemon, uh, Gundam, Trigun, all that. I mean, honestly, also at that age, I think I was also I was at the age where I thought. I was better than a lot of things. So I was like, oh, like the only, you know, Cowboy Bebop's the only real cartoon, you know, kind of (laughs) up my own ass. So anything that like, I don't know why, because I love toys and I still buy them. But there was that like four year period when I was like, this isn't real. They're just selling toys, man. And then now I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy. I have like a ton of toys on my desk. So Pokemon was... I was so enamored with Pokemon at that time, and Zoids is definitely part of that post-Pokemon, mm-hmm. uh, Bakugan, Digimon, all the Beyblade, just just all these toy brands dumping their uh, serial anime on American shores. 
Pokemon was like my secret because <laughs> I knew instinctually this was baby stuff. But yeah. I was I just loved that meat and potatoes anime shown in yeah. framework yeah. where it's just you got to believe in the heart of your friends. It's my oh, favorite. No. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like something about being a sad boy. Like, I mean, it's, it's shown in it's made. It was made for kids yeah. with low self-esteem to believe in themselves and then supplant those feelings of confidence with purchasing products. And it worked for all of us. <laughs> We all still buy products. I have a KK slider thing on my desk from Animal Crossing. I'm 36. I'm a 36-year-old divorced man. <laughs> so sad. So Zoid specifically, I think I mentioned this maybe in a bonus episode before, but I need to just tell you this because uh, nobody believes me. When I was in a freshman and sophomore in high school, yeah, uh, I was really self-conscious. I was uh, the chubbiest kid in my class. I just like... At Phys Ed, I was always like, you know, I, this was the struggling to do a single pull-up at the presidential fitness test era. I know that feeling. <laughs> I have been there. Little legs just kicking in futility. Everyone's watching. It's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> a wonderful government program. And so I thought I had the great idea that I was going to work out. I was going to I was going to get buff. I was going to fix yeah. myself completely. So I went to the YMCA and joined their like teen fitness program. Yeah. First year. Uh, it was just this me and a, basically a child, basically still a child, <laughs> like hanging out with all these like uh, lawyers and doctors who just came to like work out and get away from their families. And I'm right. just like struggling to like run on my little chubby legs on a treadmill. And eventually and the next year uh, they were like, hey, uh, you're going to exercise in our special teen room now. And it was a racquetball court that they had laid out some, like, foam pads on and no. just had, like, a few recumbent bicycles and a stair machine on. <laughs> and hanging on the side of the wall was a single, like, CRT television that I tuned to Toonami every day after uh, school. Yeah. So imagine, like, a chubby Ivan Drago. Yeah. Like, doing <laughs> full exercises with nothing to watch and consume except... Tsunami. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So, like, this era was so intense for me. And uh, part of that was Zoids. And so, you uh, so I asked you to watch some Zoids, and yeah. you, you saw it. There was, uh, there's, there's robot animals yeah. in a, and the, and the hotshot pilots that, uh, that, that pilot them. That was a terrible yeah. turn of phrase. <laughs> what was at least what's besides the very generic shown in anime children's yeah. tropes, what stood out to you as like at least memorable? Uh, I like the robot that's judging the fights. I, <laughs> whenever there's like a robot that has like a gravelly robot voice, I'm immediately like, why isn't that the main character? Uh, I, like, I like the robot judge uh, deciding fight. You know, it's also like as much as I make fun of these shows, there's always a moment where I'm like, you can do it. Like, I still get that in me a little bit, whether it's conscious or not. Like, I'm like, is he going to do it? Yeah. 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 That's what the whole show is, is them saying I can't do it, then doing it. But it, yeah, it, it didn't like it's I, I don't think I'm going to watch the whole series, but I didn't hate watching it. So I guess, okay, we have to kind of get into some history because that's the point of the show. Yeah. The, what you watched was tech is net was originally known as just plain Zoids. Mm -hmm. uh, it started airing in 2002 on Toonami as just like a regular old fill in show in between all the other shows that they were showing. Yeah. But here's the thing. It was actually the second 
season, the second, I guess, version or third. Mm-hmm. It was technically the third season of the Zoids anime. Okay. So to start, oh god, how do we do this? We're like time dilated. There's like the American timeline and the Japanese timeline. Go, let's go with Japanese timeline because I feel like fans will get mad at you if you go with the American timeline. Okay. So as we covered in the first segment, the toy line <laughs> had existed. Since the early 80s. This was right. Uh, born right alongside the Transformers, born ro- like the GoBots. This was yeah. this has been around forever, but it never quite hit in Japan. Maybe when you were a kid in the 80s, you remember something like RoboStrux or Starriers yeah. or yeah. all these attempts to make Zoids happen, and it just couldn't happen. Um, and, and it's because kids are lazy and don't like construction sets. They want, like, cool toys they can just actually play with. Right, yeah. Um, they like Legos because after you're done building the Lego, you can then do other shit with it. Yeah. Yeah. But just like, hey, build this one thing. Follow in. Hey, kids, follow instructions. <laughs> like the what Lego does is go, they're like the point of it's to put it together. And everyone's like, oh, all right, then like yeah. another toy. If it's like, oh, I got to put it together first. What? No, <laughs> it's a good. That's a good trick by Lego. Yeah, it's the it's the greatest trick those Danish devils ever pulled. <laughs> Tomy, the company yeah. that made these toys, had a massive success with Pokemon because they bought the merchandising rights for oh. Pokemon and had a huge influx of capital from that. And the kind of refined version of the toy universe making an anime that then guided play for the rest of the universe came into being. Right. And their first attempt at that was a what is now known as Zoid's Chaotic Century. Yeah. Which itself was originally just called Zoids in Japan. <laughs> uh, it started in uh, September 4th, 1999. And this one is actually a little bit different than what you watched, which was uh, Zoid's New Century, the one that yeah. first aired on Toonami. This one was... Directed by, uh, actually, no, the director isn't interesting. The guy I want to talk about <laughs> is the writer. Oh. So the writer of this series was a guy named Katsuyuki Sumisawa. And he was the head writer and scenario for the first two Zoid shows. And honestly, he basically is the perfect writer for a Toonami hit show. Because yeah. his previous credits include uh, Gundam Wing, Great. Naruto, yep. Yu Yu Hakusho, Oh, wow. Zatch Bell, Inuyasha, and he wrote 72 episodes of Dragon Ball Z. Shit. Like, this guy was the shit for anime that became hits in America. Right. He's like the guy in Elf who they bring in to, like, write the children's book. Yeah. They're like, this guy's gonna do it, man. I found a couple of interviews with him. Um, one anime news network asked him, what was the most challenging thing you've ever written? Uh, and he answered, uh, I had to do an episode of Dragon Ball Z that adapted eight panels of manga. Eight panels into 30 minutes. Oh, that's nuts. <laughs> Which, if you watch the original Dragon Ball, uh, I believe it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's uh, like, it's what it, I remember. I remember it as being this super fast moving series. And whenever I watch it now, I'm like, this is a lot of filler. <laughs> There's a lot of filler in Dragon Ball. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag and Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? 
The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, Fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. And uh, in 1995, 1996, he was the main creative force behind the story of Gundam Wing, which mm-hmm. was literally Cartoon Network's highest rated program on the Toonami block by a substantial margin. Like, we yeah. talk about Dragon Ball Z, we talk about Sailor Moon, uh, but for actual ratings, Gundam Wing was it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it had this soap opera plot, all of these extremely... Uh, meandering diatribes about the nature of war and peace and yep. uh, crazy twists. Like the thing, it felt like it's the kind of thing a kid could watch every day, which is how that worked. Yeah. So the premise, so Zoid's Chaotic Century, the first one, 1999, introduces our plucky hero, Van Flyheit. Uh, his dad, get this, was a former ace Zoid pilot who died in battle and left him abandoned with his sister. <laughs> That's like every anime. Every Every anime. anime. Every anime. Oh, your dad did this before you, but he's dead. In the first episode, he stumbles upon some ancient ruins, and inside two mysterious capsules, he finds a young girl. Okay. And in the Japanese, I had to look it up, and in the the Japanese version, she is like full-on, like, covered in weird cables and naked and like, you know, anime girl. Like, every found anime girl. Yeah. And in the American version, obviously... He ju- they just like cut away from her and her all of her dialogue is off screen till she finally puts some clothes on. Which censorship? Good, good yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> imagine being mad. Imagine being mad. Censorship. They censored it. Weirdly enough, this is I found on YouTube a bunch of people had uh, restored the episodes oh. by what they did was they uploaded the original U.S. version of the episode and then intercut the deleted scenes. From the Japan, uh, no, I'm sorry, from the Spanish dub. Yeah, yeah. God, so, like, crazy. you're watching this, and in the middle, they'd just be like, "Por qué?" <laughs> just because there was a gun in frame. It's it's very weird. If you look up Zoid's Chaotic Century on YouTube, you can just see this homunculus restored version. I have such respect for fans, and not because I actually respect them, but because, like, I will think I'm a fan of something. Like, I'll be like, yeah, I really like Mario 64. And then you realize there's people who've spent, like, their entire adult life, like, going line by line through the code to, like, see (laughs) things that were lost. And I'm like, oh, I'm not really a fan. I just (laughs) like this very much and base my personality on it. But there's actual fans. The the very idea that I once tried to speak on Mario 64 in public with authority is ludicrous. (laughs) I, you know, like, I... As I was talking to you, I wrote a book about Silent Hill 2, and it is coming out in December, and I'm terrified that, well, one, I had to cut out half of it because it's a tiny book, but I'm worried fans are going to be like, that's not what it is, and, like, I'm going to get, like, one fact wrong and just be ruined for it. Uh, for, it's, that's through Boss Fight, right? Or That's for Boss Fight books, yeah. Uh, we've used so many of those books in, on this show as oh. resources, so it's actually kind of exciting. It's a shame we already did our Silent Hill episode. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Uh the funny thing is, while I was writing that book, and then we can get back to Zoids, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, every time I was like, there's so many 
YouTube videos and like analyses of it that I had to like keep cutting things that I was like, oh, this is interesting. Then I was like, oh, there's a whole documentary about the making of the game. Well, I'll cut back on that because that's already available. Like it was there were so many things that I had to like drop out of it. But I'm certain fans will be mad at me about which is crazy because I'm a fan of Silent Hill 2. And I went and I, you know, like got a lot of the info on it from the Reddit page. There's a ton of Silent Hill fan sites that like transcribe old interviews from magazines that are long dead. Um, but I am terrified those people are going to murder me. <laughs> so we have the mystery girl named Fiona. And obviously he also finds our, because this is the post Pokemon wave, our mascot character, Zeke, yes. who is this gray, lumpy, half robot, half flesh Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> and it's very upsetting. He's just a very, he's not cute. He's, you know, he's up to all sorts of anime antics where he makes cute faces or he tries to make goofy faces. Right. But this is what gets me. The gimmick of this cartoon was it used early CG. All the Zoids are 3D animated with uh, cutting edge at the time, cell shading techniques to kind of make it look at the very least like it was kind of drawn. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Zeke, the mascot character, is 100% 2D and it's never acknowledged. And it's just uh, it's just it's just this weird, slimy thing. That's uh, so weird. But he's an he's one of the legendary organoids. An old, <laughs> a, a rare kind of Zoid that can enhance and power up the other kinds of Zoids. Oh, he's like a USB battery backup. He's yeah, like yeah. The he's... USB battery of Zoids. So we eventually build our crew along with um, Irvine, a tough as a no nonsense mercenary who just says stuff like "Don't get cocky, kid," and you really <laughs> think the world is just flowers and gumdrops? You know that guy. Yeah, of course, of course. And Moonbay, a Coded Native American cute girl trucker. Okay. Except her truck is like a, a weird robot worm because we're in robot times. Yeah. And um, most importantly, in this series, the Zoids are naturally existing techno-organic things that just happen to exist on this planet. Mm-hmm. And like, instead of being like built military hardware, they're kind of like war horses. They're just like... You know, uh, certain regions have certain Zoids, like, endemic to them, and they're captured by the military <laughs> and trained. Yeah, I getcha. Uh, certain Zoids are rarer, certain Zoids are harder to pilot, but there's this idea that uh, something happened in the... Oh, it's a post-apocalyptic wasteland. There's, like, just deserts and references to an old war that nearly destroyed the entire world. Yeah. This show goes on for 67 episodes. Through which we have political intrigue between the Gylos Empire right. and the Republic of um, uh, Xenobos. No, Xenobos was the Empire. What? The Helic Republic. Uh, right. uh, red Team, Blue Team. The yep. whole of the Zoids franchise is just finding reasons for Red Team, Blue Team. Yep. And weirdly enough, the core conflict is that our villain of the of the franchise is trying to actually enact war like a a shitty long-haired like bastard son of a baron named gunther prozen is doing (laughs) sneaky behind like game of thrones behind the scenes shit to foss to foment hostility between the republic and the empire and our heroes are like trying to like de-escalate it of course. And which leads to a lot of like, nothing good can come from war and like monologues where one off characters from the military of each side is like, you know, people say that glory is what matters. But to the soldiers who fight, 
glorious, but a a a, a thin balm. <laughs> like, ah, uh, God. And for a children's show, sure, yeah. for, you know, the it's like a little bit more baby shoes than Gun- even Gundam Wing, which was already Gundam is baby shoes, you know, war analogies. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine how that would actually like reverberate with kids. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember watching Gundam Wing, and you know, I was thinking at the very least, like, yeah, man, armed conflict between nations sure is icky. <laughs> I always, as a kid, I was always like, not bummed out by the military message because I think it's good, but I was always like, man, having mechs must suck. Because it's like, <laughs> like every, it's, and I know I recognize that a lot of, a lot of the culture, like in mech related literature and art is in regards to war. And a lot mm. of it deals very deeply with war. But at the same time, it's always like, you guys got mechs, though. Why are you so upset? You have <laughs> robots. Enjoy it a little bit. Don't just enjoy it for the one episode you get the mech. Enjoy the mech the whole time. But they never do. You're right. Actually, that's actually... An, uh, so, th- okay, here's my, here's, here's, here's my thesis statement. Mm-hmm. Is uh, Zoid's Chaotic Century is kind of baby's first real robot genre. Yeah, sure. Where, like, you watch Power Rangers, you watch, like, other, or if you were in Japan at the very least, uh, the super robot genre was basically just very tall superheroes, and, you know, you beat up the bad guys, and, nothing. you know, you didn't, physics didn't enter into it, like, morals really didn't enter into it. That's why Neon Genesis Evangelion came, existed, was to be like, hey, what if these giant things that were basically people were people? That'd be fucked up, right? What if the monsters deserve to destroy us? Yeah. While Gundam was like, no, these are tanks and the people who use tanks and the reason they use tanks are interesting. Yeah. And that's fair. And I think that's very valid. And I appreciate that's in there. But I also want a guy who's like, what are we talking about, guys? This is a mech. Come on. (laughs) Like, not the war guy, not like the general who's like, we must destroy them. And not like the the fuck off kid that's always like, whatever, I've got this. I just want the one character who's like, guys, we sure do talk about war a lot. Well, this is our jobs. Like, like, can we just have fun for it? Like, I want that to be a character in Gundam. So Van, Van, our main character, who has a cool, like, red Band-Aid patch on his front face, uh, an undercut and a ponytail. Yeah. Uh, kind of a desert scrapper kind of guy. Uh, is that because he's our protagonist character. So he has to keep saying stuff like... There's something about the thrill of being one with your Zoid. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Zoids aren't just a weapon. They're your friend, and you got to believe in them. A good pilot never gives up on his Zoid. I, I want to switch the energies of Pokemon and Gundam. Like, I want Gundam people to be so excited and Pokemon people to be like, hey, is it kind of fucked up that we do this? Just Is anyone else kind of, well, oh, no? All right, let's do it. Let's just switch. Eventually, uh, after so much plotting and stopping plots, turns out, uh, our, as is common with shonen anime, our big villain uh, totally succeeds in enacting his worst case scenario world ending pro- uh, thing, which mm-hmm. in this case is uh, re- reviving the Death Sar, which is oh. a big evil Tyrannosaurus Rex like Godzilla on steroids if he was made of black steel and covered in razor blades and had a right. giant cannon's. Uh, sticking out of all of his orifices. Jeez. He immediately starts trying to destroy the world. Uh, but luckily, turns out the power of friendship was enough to stop it. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah. It turns out all the things we were doing this entire time, we didn't have to fret because uh, the 
big evil thing that was going to destroy the world had a incredibly dumb weak spot on its back <laughs> and we could just take it down. I wouldn't do this without friends. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So in Japan, the series does a time skip and it comes back as Zoid's guardian heroes. Mm-hmm. And our characters are a little bit older, a little bit sexier. Our main character now wears a really dumb shirt that has a um, cutout for his abs. Yeah. And our mysterious girl character fills out and now there's like sexual tension. Yeah. And the new plot revolves around, get this, another sneaky fuck trying to revive the Death Star. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, guys, just leave it alone. And uh, it turns out, um, don't worry, though. Uh, we can beat it again. <laughs> we like we remember that its back's kind of weak. Let's just do that again, guys. Yeah, uh, basically, there was another uh, bad guy named Raven who uh, just just wanted to fight. That's so. Raven. He just cared about like he only was after our hero because he was a challenge and he had to prove he was the best. <laughs> uh, and he was real moody about it. Uh, there's a big dumb reveal where he was like his almost half brother. Almost half like, brother? Was he like a quarter brother somehow? Uh, the big reveal. I, you know, you know what? Don't you can't watch this show except on YouTube and eBay DVD collection. Nope. Or like uh, illegal anime streaming sites that are getting taken out one by one recently. Of course. The yeah, Raven, our big spooky rival character who always uh, piloted black zoids and couldn't believe that he wasn't strong enough was almost adopted by our hero's uh, dead dad. If he hadn't been killed in battle, he would have been our hero's brother. But he was abandoned, and that's why he's so moody all the time. I mean, I get that, though. Like, if you were close to being adopted, then the guy died. I would, you know, I'd probably have a chip on my shoulder. (laughs) I get that. I get Raven. I get where he hates. So this series airs on uh, weekday mornings. Like, kind of as soon as Adult Swim kind of finally peters out, Cartoon Network resumes its programming with Zoids, uh, Chaotic Century, around, let's see, if this was, like, around 2003, I, would be- I believe, is where yeah. it would air in America. And this is the kicker. So kids are watching, like, these sad kids who just need a hit of escapist fantasy before the school bus takes them to the misery factory. Yep. The kids who just need just some robot action, some intense pr- uh, protagonist boy feelings... They just they just need this hit, and this show is a comfort to them. Even though all the millions of kids that watch this can barely remember the plot of it now. Yep. And Cartoon Network never aired the final four episodes. Why not? What happened? Uh, just scheduling was off. Just the the pattern. I don't know what the actual issue was, but in that morning run, they just never figured out that they were missing the last four episodes. Where all of our old characters come together and team up and discover, rediscover the power of friendship, and our protagonists admit that they have feelings for each other, and it all, and they defeat the big evil monster robot for the second time. Right. And they had to actually do a Saturday mini marathon on Toonami uh, to finally air it. So it was called the Zoids Chaotic Century Final Four, and that was when they fi- you finally got to see the ending of that show. And 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 that and that's when we found out friendship worked again. That's when we found from uh, January fourth, two thousand three, from two p.m. to four p.m. We finally got the power of friendship. <laughs> now, and this is a different one. Now, is this a different one? Is this or is that what you were talking about? The one that I watched. So the one you watched was 
Zoid's New Century, which right. started airing in 2001 in Japan and 2002 in America. Right. And this was aired on the regular Toonami series. Gotcha. And it's, uh, it only has 27 episodes. And this one, in this version, Zoids are just like actual machines. Like they are built, you can repair them, you can buy parts for them. Right. And uh, in the, what do you remember from the first episode? Like if you could try and describe the plot, what, what, could, you, what could you describe it as? So we uh, open on this guy being upset that, you know, the robot lands and it's like, hey, everyone, this is a Zoid battle area, so you don't want to stick around for this. And this guy who's a scrapper is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to camo my truck and hide in the middle of the battle. Battle happens. Clearly good guys are about to be defeated, but one of them trips over this guy's van or whatever. Uh, so the robot's like, you know what? This this is an invalid fight. You guys got to do it tomorrow. And the good guy team's like, tomorrow? We can't repair these by tomorrow. And then the truck guy... They stumble upon him somehow, or he stumbles upon them. I forget that part. And then he's able to ride in this, like, mysterious white liger. Liger, I'm... But really a liger, but he... It's he, a real like, animal. I know it's a real animal, but it's like... I don't know. It's like a liger sounds like something that... I guess it, it's for kids. It's something a kid would come up with. Never mind. Um, so... I, uh, well, I learned the animal existed from this animal. <laughs> <laughs> um... Uh, so the White Liger, and he's able to ride it, and everyone's like, oh, all right, well, you can just join our team then. And so he joins the team, and he kind of, like, beats the bad guys in the in the, in the the sort of the makeup match. And then he's, I guess, welcome to the team. The Blitz crew, I think they're called. Yeah. I love this series way better than the one I just painstakingly tried to describe. It's fun. I had fun watching it. Yeah. I, it does seem fun. Uh, it's written by the same Gundam guy. And uh, the idea that these are just over-the-top battle bots in this barely fleshed-out universe where big, dumb animals shooting live ammunition at each other is the number one sport-slash-entertainment-slash-cultural product of this world. Yeah. Is kind of like that the Zoids Fighting League has actual satellites in orbit to drop their little robot judges. I love that though. I like like I have this weird thing, and I don't know if you have this where I don't I don't watch or like a lot of sports, but as soon as it's like a sci-fi sport, I'm so in. I don't know what that is. Like like if you're like, oh hey, you're gonna watch this boxing match or like UFC fight, I'm, I don't I don't know why why would I do that? That sounds terrible. And then the moment you're like, two robots are fighting, I'm like, where where? Let me know. I will watch all of it. Yeah, it's way less. Uh, melodramatic, way less uh, serious. Our main character is uh, Bit Cloud. Is I, his I, name. Saw, I, I picked that up, Bit Cloud, and I was like, oh, Bit Cloud. Yeah, Bit Cloud. Bit Cloud. And I just need to look up the guy's name because it's I, I make fun of it so many times. Uh, the His voice actor in the English dub was Richard Ian Cox, who did the Inu, who did the voice of Inuyasha, and he has that. That anime hero voice! Oh, yeah, that's, yeah. Go, Liger! <laughs> I love that. I love that energy so much. That's such a fun energy. I like that energy, and like I was saying earlier, they're like, I will kill them all. And you're like, come on. No, you won't. <laughs> come on. Chill out. The whole thing, yeah, the, uh, the crew, the Blitz team crew, I just find incredibly uh, just endearing. They have the go-to, like, uh, snippy uh, lady Lena, 
yeah. who's just like, I'm so cute, but also I'll kick your, you know, just classic yeah. the girl. How dare he do that thing? <laughs> yeah. But I'm also nice. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the one woman in a show that does a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Why have many female characters when you can just have one lady be all the ladies? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The character designs, I feel, are a lot more appealing. Uh, the animation quality of the Zoids are way better than they were in the first season. Or in the Yeah, in the first quote-unquote season. You know, there's just more, there's better consideration of fight choreography. Yeah. The way they animate these, these Zoids, how... Like, because they were actually, the studio Zebic, I believe it was, actually 3D scanned the toys and used those as the CG models. Like, they move, you know, they're not, yeah. like, fully, they're, they're clunky. I mean, there's no other way to say it. They're kind of clunky. I love they that. They feel though. like they have weight to them. I, I, love, I love the idea of scanning the toys and using them, because that means, like, the toys feel like actual valid, you know, mm-hmm. offshoots of the show. Cause, or the show feels like a valid offshoot of the toys. Because you and I, especially growing up in the era we did, um, you know, like around early 90s through, you know, mid 90s or through late 90s, there were so many things where you get the toy based on the show and it was nothing like the show or oh, like the yeah. face of a character looked nothing like it. To get like a one to one replica to me is very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, the 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 tournament arc kind of framework of the show just means that every episode there's a new dumb bad guy and a new Zoid and they have to have like. Yeah, is they have to find it's like Pokemon, like each bad guy is a dumb puzzle where they just do an ass pull. It's like, uh, this one has a bad turning radius. We got to we got to do that. <laughs> get on his get out on his sides. And he's like, oh, no, the, my 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 one weakness. How did you figure that out? <laughs> the one thing always I've been completely undefeated for my entire career. No one's thought to shoot my side. What? A water attack? But how? Because <laughs> yeah. we all know about these guys. We all it's either that or they find out the bad guy has like some sort of backstory that humanizes them, and then like for some reason the defeat is still okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Their their answer to Team Rocket is the backdraft group <laughs> that is trying to take over the entire league. Sure. And they basically have an there's just all these scenes of these, I'm just going to say Jeffrey Epstein Illuminati rich people with their faces blurred being like, yes, Zoid battles need to be more violent. I want to <laughs> bet money on them. <laughs> like, take uh, out that. these noble Zoids with their feeble rules. <laughs> and the idea that this is like a sport where no one's actually getting killed, really, yeah. lets the action actually go harder. Because so many times in the war story, they kind of have to edit around the fact that these are people in an actual conflict shooting right. at each other. Uh, the, the, in Chaotic Century, what they'll end up, uh, they'll cut to a flashing screen that just says, like, uh, combat system frozen. And they'll reuse old footage of someone talking and be like, oh, I can't fight anymore, <laughs> instead of showing them blow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the G.I. Joe parachutes, like that kind of thing. I'm out of here. I can't. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You got to you got to kill people, man. You got to kill people. No, I do like I do like that. That they don't die. Although in the first episode, it makes it the bad guys really talk as if they're about to kill them. So when they don't, I was very like, they're like, I hope you got everything in order because I'm going to fucking murder you. And then they're like, <laughs> they just like shoot the guy in the leg and they're like, all right, that's it for you. Yeah, like, it's very <laughs> you expect a little more violence at the start, but I get it. So I really enjoy this. It's short. It's very fun. It's very, it's, it's, it's like potato chips. It it's just, fun. it's super great. Um, yeah. The animation quality is great. Uh, 
And yeah, if you just have this, oh, and it's just so 2001. It's just so early 2000s. It is. Uh, Mary, uh, super producer Mary, if you can play uh, a clip of one of the battle themes from this show, which is uh, No Future from Zoid's New Century, just listen to this new rap rock just riff. It's just so, oh, I'm sorry, just play it. yeah record scratches (laughs) guitars and record scratches it's amazing oh man what a what a time to be alive that time i feel like this i missed this show probably because i was just graduating high school and just starting college Mm. and i think that was like the time when i stopped having cable because i didn't have cable in college and Mm. so i didn't have cable and we were just at the cusp of i think my first two years of college it was still relatively slow internet it wasn't mm-hmm. until maybe junior that like Ethernet really fucking flew and I could get like BitTorrent and stuff. And so th- I have like a two or three year dry period where I don't know anything that came out on like Cartoon Network or Toonami. That's uh, that's good. That's <laughs> that's a good thing. You were actually being a person. Right. I was going to college and meeting people and not getting late. I, I could go into I, I on my notes. I have more stuff. But like, do people really need to know that the first uh, season was a co-production of the East Japan Rail Company and Shuisha manga publishers like eh, no one needs to know that someone really does. There's one. There's at least one listener who's like, you fucking he didn't mention the rail company. Why did he mention the rail company? That's directly connected. It basically boils down to just weird Japan facts that the company responsible for the subway ads and train ads. Because Japan is so train crazy, yeah, was so successful that it spun off to being like one of the biggest ad firms in all in the whole country. I mean, there I would trust the train companies. Have you been to Japan? Those trains uh, are no. good. Those trains are good, especially the uh, the train between Kyoto and like Tokyo. Man, they got trains down. I've I've said this before. My I'm, I'm currently been uh, trying to lose a bunch of weight, and uh, my actual fitness goal is to lose enough weight so I can comfortably fly and exist in Japan. Uh, And then, once I'm there, eat so much that they physically can't make me go home. (laughs) Like the logistics. (laughs) Just logistically, they'll have to let me stay forever. It's weirdly cheap to eat in Japan. Like, like getting to Japan is expensive, but once you're there, it's like a cheap country. (sighs) The dream. The dream! Dream. dream. Uh, So... After uh, Zoid's new... So after the first two series air in America, they follow it up with uh, something that was actually kind of produced by Hasbro, who was really trying hard to make the toy line work in uh, America. Even so, even though it got the shows got great ratings, toy sales, as uh, we talked about in the first segment, it's a construction kit, it's expensive, it right. just isn't quite doing the numbers that Hasbro wants to. So they produce another series called Zoid's Fusors mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't even air its full produced season. Only 13 episodes aired in America. Uh, it involves, obviously, a bunch of new Zoids that uh, fuse together, so you have to buy more Zoids if you uh, want to recreate yeah. the Zoids from the cartoon. Yeah, I watched the first episode. The animation quality is off. The uh, Just everything about it is cheaper. They're using a different animation company. Of course. And, it's, and the main character just has a real bad dub voice that I just don't even... 
It's just bad. After that, Zoids kind of went away. Another show aired in Japan called Zoids Genesis, and they went full anime. There's like waifus. They gave the Liger a cool samurai sword. Uh, (laughs) The designs are really strong. Like it's actually there's uh, it's a real hit with people that do the model kits because the Zoid designs in this one are really aggressive, really stylish, have like cool weapons and accessories. Uh, I've watched like action compilations on YouTube. And from that perspective, it looks pretty cool. But I just couldn't get around to uh, that cartoon. It then uh, disappears for another couple of years. And finally, uh, the newest version of the franchise is Zoid's Wild, which you can actually, oddly enough, just serendipity. The first season of that uh, dropped on Netflix like this past week. And uh, this one changes a bunch of stuff. They lean extra hard into the Pokemon thing. The style is very much that uh, Pokemon Sun Moon yeah. X, uh, uh, animation style. They've shrunk the Zoids. So now kids like kind of ride on their backs like saddles. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, uh, the new thing they introduce is Wild Instinct Mode where you uh, insert a special key and you unlock the Zoid's true power. And the end result is both you and the Zoid get a glowing eye like Sans from Undertale. Like, the t- right. I swear the timing, like, they were just like, you get the cool Undertale eye. Ah, oh, man, that's so funny. Um, and the funny part is, I watched a, uh, one episode, the, bad, the main bad guy is a spooky, uh, evil, uh, coded gay clown who, uh, very Hisoka, very, you know, super anime villainy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's, like, fighting a bunch of children and being like, ooh, this is so exciting. Play with me some more. Like, that shit. Uh, man, always, always. And everyone, like, lights up at the same time to fight him, so everyone just has the same, like, repeated uh, After Effects graphic of the glowing <laughs> eye just hovering over their face. Yep. It's very surreal. The toys are amazing. If you look up the Zoids Wild toy line... They're these motorized kits that all have, like, these secondary modes. They're kind of impressive. Right. Uh, I, like, I almost want to pick one up after doing all this research. But it is a, it's just at its core, it's a children's toy anime. Believe in the heart of the product. Uh, trusting the product. Just love the product. Yeah. And you will have fun adventures. I guess, uh, where, does, where does the toy tie-in cartoon fit? Like, is it all cynicism? Like, what is the role of the toy tie-in? Is it like why? Why do we want to live in these universes, physical and virtual? That's a very complicated question. I love those. I'm great at those. <laughs> uh, I don't. I mean, I think I don't. I don't know. If cynical's the right word because they're not being. They're not hiding what they're doing. Like when <laughs> when you know what I mean. Like it's not like it's not like it's like. Like cynical would be like a toy line based on Schindler's List. And you're like, oh, you're just trying to cash in with toys off that. Like, people, like, with this, it's like, hey, this is the toy show. Like, so to me, that's not cynical. Is it, does it prey on uh, kids' desires? Sure, but what form of entertainment doesn't prey on some desire or another? I think, honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me that much. I know that it bothers a lot of people when something's designed to sell a toy. And maybe it's because I grew up in that sort of media environment where, as a kid, I knew it was selling me a toy, so it didn't bother me as much because I knew. Um, I don't know. I don't think it's cynical. Like, you know, is is Power Ranger cynical? Sure, there's an argument for, yeah, it's cynical because, you know, you're buying footage and you're just, like, adding a couple scenes onto it and throwing it out there as a show and selling toys and making billions. At the same time, 
it, a lot of people have great memories of it, and those great memories are also attached to the toys. It's not like, you know, it's not like it was a trap door. Kids knew. Kids wanted the toys because they liked the show. I don't know. I resist the idea that it's cynical to do that. I do think that it, that it's, you know, capitalistic, which is negative in its own way. But I, you know, it's not like Garfield comics aren't made to sell merchandise either. Or, you know, I can't think of like a higher form children's show that like is better than other children's show by virtue of the fact that there was no T-shirt. Like, <laughs> I know you, like maybe you can argue Calvin and Hobbes, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I can buy that. I guess I guess that's uh, that's kind of where that's where my Zoid's journey from this past week has ended. <laughs> Uh, shout out to Katsuyuki Sumisawa for literally writing the entirety of every current day weeb's childhood. Yep. Uh, yep, yep. Good, good for you. That's impressive. That's super impressive. Uh, there's a whole network of, you know, localization companies, stuff like Viz Media, Ocean Studios, all these deals with Hasbro behind the scenes that I just could not quite decipher. Yeah. And I do not know enough Japanese to look up the Japanese wikis. Of course. Of course. But uh, if... This is, but that was Zoids. All right, guys, that was, you remember it. We were all there. It happened. <laughs> and I'm confirming it. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Zoids is a show. If, uh, uh, Mike, Mr. Drucker. Yes, Thank sir. you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you for having me. I know you've been uh, pretty busy, obviously. Uh, you've been, uh, you're the co-head writer of co-head writer. Uh, Samantha B at the moment. Co-head writer of Full Frontal with Samantha B Wednesdays at 1030 on TBS. Yes. <laughs> uh, and obviously, it's good to see you again. Good to see uh, you too. We gotta we we have to find some superfluous uh, post quarantine nerd event that we can attend and either enjoy or relentlessly make fun of from the back. I would love that so much. I would I would love like dumb retro game cons to come back and like small time anime cons that are fun. I would love that to come back. Uh, I just uh, or if you do you are you one of those guys who own a VR setup? Because I'll just show up at your house. I do own a VR setup. All right, I'm just going to show up at your house. Show then. up at my house. Just show up at my house. I'll bring uh, your favorite brand of uh, uh, alternative seltzer, hard alcohol brand, Yay. and we'll we'll have a time. That actually does sound like a good time. And I'll bring I'll bring my own face mask pad because I'm sweaty because I'm just a sweaty. <laughs> man. Fair, fair. Follow. Uh, hey, if you enjoy this show, uh, like I said before, uh, you can buy Matt Alt's book Pure Invention, and you can look forward to Mike Drucker's uh, Silent Hill Two book from boss fight books uh if you enjoy our podcast uh please check out patreon.com slash for only five dollars a month you get access to our weekly bonus shows where we get we, we get a little loosey-goosey we uh, talk about things that are in our own lives uh we do extra interviews we do extra content that just couldn't fit on the regular show uh, it's a good time and uh we also do the sunday study study stream where every week uh, on the Discord, you guys can sit in with us and uh, we will watch and play and read and engage with the future week's subject matters. Help us forge the future of your favorite topics on the Sunday study stream. And uh, uh, Mr. Mike Drucker, uh, do you feel like you need more Twitter followers? Sure, I could always do more. I'm a black hole of need. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Drucker, which is my name, and on Instagram at Mike Drucker is dead. Until next time, folks, keep on whizzing and never stop bruising. Holden will be back next week, I promise. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.